I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Happy Monday. What's up, podcast fam? Today, my guest is longtime family friend, David Spinks. David is a three-time startup founder, an experienced community executive, and has personally advised and trained hundreds of organizations in community strategy over the past decade. David founded an incredible company called CMX. They are the premier network for community and professionals. They created the industry's largest event called CMX Summit that brings together thousands of people focused around helping companies and people build and foster community. David's entrepreneurial story is amazing. For some time, he was so focused on just being an entrepreneur and building businesses, but wasn't really too focused around what he really wanted to build and his true calling. And he eventually found his way there, which is community. He's built an amazing business, led it through a successful acquisition. And in this episode, we just dive into so much around his story, why community, how he built the business, how he led it through a successful acquisition, and much of his why and how. And there are so many actionable takeaways in this episode. So I'm really pumped to be releasing this one today. Before we jump in, take a moment, share this episode with a friend, subscribe to Bits of Gold on Apple Podcasts, and tag us on your Instagram story. You can tag us at Bits of Gold underscore podcast. With that being said, enjoy this episode with the one and only David Spinks. David Spinks, thanks so much for coming on the show. Very excited to have you on today. Pumped to be here. Awesome. So I know we go back a long way, you know, and I know our families know each other for a long time. It's funny. I have I have a memory like super, Uh-oh. super early coming over your house. I want to say watching Kill Bill. Wow. Like I just remember sitting on the couch watching that movie. And then it's funny now I had no plans to tell you this, but now that I brought it up, a few months back, I'm sitting on the couch with, with a buddy and he's like, oh, let's watch Kill Bill. It's the best movie. And I'm like, you know, I haven't actually seen that other than this one memory I have where I guess I watched it when I was like super young with you. Wow. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. So let's let's jump into the show then. That's how you associate me is with Kill Bill. Okay. Good. <laughs> I remember the yellow, the, I don't even know who it was, but that the yellow suit of Kill Bill and the That's swords right. and yeah. So hair. is it possible? I feel like you had, you had a, like one of those dojo swords. I, I did used to have a sword. That's very possible. My dad used to come back from China. Both of our dads used to work in China a lot. So we'd get a lot of Chinese gifts and he would bring back one time he brought back a sword, which my sister was not thrilled about because, you know, brother, sister relationships, <laughs> it became a, a source of power for me that she did not have. <laughs> yeah. So I guess then I'm not crazy. I think that is a real memory. So yeah. So I know you, you had mentioned you tuned into some episodes, but really what inspired me to start this podcast, Bits of Gold, really on a mission to help inspire people to build their dream life. That can take a lot of meaning in a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. To me, that means living a life of, of adventure, doing the things you want, when you want, with who you want. It really means harnessing the limited time we have on earth and spending it how you want. So, you know, with that, I thought, you know, you have an awesome story and would love to kick this off by you taking us back to wherever the beginning is for you of, of your journey and your story. Ah, uh, way back. I mean, you know, I guess it depends how far back you want to go, but the theme of my professional journey and, and a lot of my life is community. So, you know, today I run a community of community builders, the largest network of community builders. And, you know, that I can trace back all the way to childhood in Long Beach. You know all about Long Beach and the culture and, and what it's like to live there and grow up there and the kinds of people who really belong there. I don't think I was one of those people. When I was young, I didn't really feel like I belonged. I had both my parents were immigrants from other countries. My mom barely spoke any English when she came 
to the U.S. from Israel. My dad was British, but very socially reserved. And, you know, I was, I guess, a unique person in, in, in a unique place. And so struggled a lot to fit in early on, which was a big pain for me because I really loved people and I loved socializing. I loved organizing social events and to love something, to love people and to not be accepted by people. It was like the ultimate pain um, and dealt with a lot of, of stress and depression around that. But I, I ended up turning to the internet in the very early days of the internet to find community because I couldn't find it on a, on a local level. And it was largely in video games. Uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4 was my game of choice. I ended <laughs> up starting an online forum and a clan. Uh, we became one of the top teams in the game, ran competitions, had hundreds and thousands of people on our forum participating, moderating. I was 14 years old with one other friend from Long Beach and a stranger that we met through the game uh, that became <laughs> our friend. He, he was our forum manager and developer. And that was kind of my first experience building an online community and, and really seeing the power of the internet to help people find connection and belonging when maybe they can't find it from the people around them. And so that just kind of became a huge theme in my life. I became fascinated with technology and how it could connect us. Eventually, I grew out of a lot of my social awkwardness. I was able to drive out of Long Beach and find different kinds of people <laughs> and found community through music and through physical games and went to college and got, by that point, I felt much more confident in my social abilities and, and it became one of my strongest assets, like where I was kind of awkward and didn't fit in early on. Um, I really felt like I could connect with anybody by the time I got to college and prided myself on knowing lots of different people and participating in lots of social groups. I ran community programs for the college union. I became the social chair for a fraternity and just was an extremely social person while still, you know, looking at technology and how that was connecting us. I was like an early adopter of Facebook, of Twitter, of basically any platform I could get my hands on. I started writing about what I was seeing in the world of technology and how it was changing the face of community. And through writing about it, uh, I was also a business administration major and, and thinking about how social media and community was affecting and changing businesses. I was writing about it, just sharing my thoughts online. A company found my blog and asked me if I wanted to be their community manager. So I became a community manager. It was my first time with a job to build community for a business. I was an intern for three months. We ended up pivoting that company and they sold the product that we were working on to this guy in Montreal who was just buying up content sites and running ads through them. So he needed someone to run the site and run the product. And I basically went over and became the managing director of that entire company. So within three months of graduating college, I was now running an entire company and you know running all the community programs. And that was kind of my first experience building community for businesses that just kind of like turned into my entire career, building community for businesses, starting businesses with a very big community focus. Um, and ultimately starting CMX, which is that that network of community professionals, because it's such a new industry, such a new concept for businesses to build community. So I, I wanted to create a community for the people who are doing this work because they had nowhere to talk to each other and support each other. And that brings me to, you know, what I'm doing today. Love it. Well, really fascinating to hear all the backstory. Obviously, very familiar with, with what you do in your business, but actually did not know most of uh, the backstory there. When you started the first community with Tony Hawk, what platform, like how do you, it's not as simple as it is today where you log on and you see thousands of people online playing the game. What platform are you on to make that first community? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4 is actually one of the first, I think it might be the first game that was built for online play on consoles. Like you could play online games on computers, but you couldn't play them on consoles. It was like the first one that used that PlayStation 2 router plugin, like a thing they had to build later and add to it. So a lot of the social interaction happened in the game, you know, while you're playing and we would just hang out in rooms and just mess around and look for glitches or trying out new lines and tricks. The forum itself, I think we use like BB Press or like one of the old school forum software. As I mentioned, like one of the other guys who started the clan and the website with me was a developer. So he built the site using that software and designed it and edited it. And I did most of the community engagement and facilitation. Crazy. How how many people would you say were in that that first community? 
I don't remember. I would guess like a thousand to five thousand somewhere in there. Um, it felt huge at the time, but I mean, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Four was also like a re- very relatively small gaming community um, compared to what you think with like Counter Strike or you know some of the more popular games today. <laughs> yeah. So you finished college. Were you thinking? I know that someone found you. A company reached out to you, but were you thinking at the time? Like, what were you thinking while you were in college? Okay, I'm going to graduate. What were you thinking you'd go on and do? I started off as a poli-sci major, and I was really interested in politics and, and debate. And, and I think I've always been very interested in like social topics and sociology. Um, I ended up kind of falling into business administration just because it was a broad enough major that allowed me to do a lot of different things. And I always had a, a kind of interest in becoming an entrepreneur. I think like it was more when I got to senior year, I was really starting to get involved in in kind of conversations online around social media and, and how it's affecting businesses. And in my school, which was uh, SUNY Geneseo, uh, a state school in New York, small school, liberal arts college that wasn't really known for business, all the classes were very outdated and did not feel anything like what you actually needed to learn to be successful in business today. I actually pitched the department on launching a social media marketing class in the business school and it would have been the first of its kind and they didn't want to do it. So I ended up pitching it to the computer science department and they did it. And I helped them put (laughs) together the curriculum for the first social media course. And so I think it was probably senior year where I was like, okay, like this is really interesting. It's really exciting. I had done an internship that the summer before senior year at Ruder Finn, a PR firm in New York. And I got to be on their like web team. We were like pitching the Metropolitan Museum on like redoing their blog and their social presence and their website. And so that kind of gave me the glimpse into how businesses were engaging online. And, and I just kind of like went full steam ahead with that. So I think by the time I finished college, I was like pretty clear that this was the kind of work I wanted to do. I wasn't sure if it could be a career path because it didn't really exist at that time. But there was enough interest of people talking about it that that seemed like the right direction. Although I would say that like I had this idea in my mind that I would be an entrepreneur and I pushed back against being a community manager because community managers were still perceived as low level, kind of not really understood, not really valued. And I was like, no, I want to be an entrepreneur and be successful and become wealthy and well-known and, you know, all that bullshit. <laughs> it was after like trying a couple businesses and and failing a bunch and like essentially like working on projects that in hindsight, I was working on them because I thought it was a great business opportunity, not because it was something that I deeply cared about. And the theme through everything has always that I've truly cared about was community. And there was a day I remember around the time when I started CMX, where I was like, what if I just leaned in to focusing on community? It was like already the way the world was kind of like telling me I was going, like everyone would call me the community guy. And I'd be like, no, 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 I'm not the community guy. I'm an entrepreneur. And there was that point where I was like, well, what if I like leaned into that idea, that identity, and I made that my entrepreneurial focus? And from that point on, it really did feel like I was... Like it was like I was swimming upstream before that. And it was like now mm. I was finally swimming downstream. It was like I had momentum, I had the wind in my back. Mm. I have a lot of questions around that. Before that, so it was the first job out of school that was at SeatGeek? Yeah. So we started a company called Scribnia first. That's what they hired me for, which was a blogger outreach platform. It connected, I'm sorry, not blogger. It was a blogger review site. So it was like Yelp for bloggers. You know, you can find a blogger, review them and discover new blogs that you might like. We pivoted halfway through the three-month accelerator program in Philly called Dream It to SeatGeek. And so I worked on SeatGeek for about a month, month and a half and helped launch the first version of SeatGeek. And, but as I mentioned, when they sold Scribnia to this entrepreneur, his name is Mark Duquette in uh, Montreal, Mark wanted someone who would like, basically, he wanted the site to be self-sustaining, the business to be self-sustaining. And so at the end of the accelerator, I left the SeatGeek team and worked full-time on Scribnia, which we pivoted to BlogDash and, and, and tried to turn it into a B2B company instead of B2C. Got it. So everyone knows SeatGeek. It's a household name at this point, yeah. I'd say. Were you, at the time, just, just out of sheer curiosity, were you like, oh, this is going to be a huge business or... No, <laughs> I was an idiot. <laughs> I, well, I'll tell you a great story that kind of 
will tell you how <laughs> I was thinking about things at the time is so so I joined as an intern and it was me Jack and Russ are the founders and Ryan uh, was the other developer they hired so it was Jack and Russ the founders Ryan a developer and me the community manager and I was doing everything that wasn't development right they would all code and I would do all the community management and figure out how to like launch SeatGeek. I was finding all the seat maps to put in to like the stadium pictures and stuff, the very first versions of those. And when we pivoted, they wanted to essentially like kind of like refresh and restart the company in a way. And so, you know, and this is, if you talk to them about this, I wonder if they remember, they gave me 1% of the company when I joined as an intern, no vesting, no cliffs, just 1% for being a three month intern. Cause it was an unpaid internship. And, you know, I was like, well, you're not going to pay me. So give me something. All right. Here's 1% of SeatGeek. When we pivoted, they're like, all right, we want to like buy back all the equity. And so they're like, you know, we'd like to buy that 1% back from you. We'll give you $5,000. You know, put yourself in my shoes at this time. I just graduated college. I had no money, no salary. I'm living in Philly in this shithole apartment that I rented for the summer. I have no savings. $5,000 was a lot of money. And we had just, you know, worked for a month and a half on this startup that like did nothing, went nowhere. And we're like pivoting with like a month left in this accelerator before demo day to launch a ticketing website that's like predicting how the price of sports and concert tickets would go. And none of these founders were math majors. Like I remember Jack had like a textbook on his desk of like predictive analytics. And like, he was, <laughs> I mean, these guys are really fucking smart, but they were learning it on the fly. So, so, okay. So like, is this going to be successful? Are we the right team to do this? I'm poor right out of college, $5,000. And I'm like, you know what? No, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to hold on to the 1%. I, you know, I think there's an opportunity here. I'm going to hold on to it. And they, and they said, wow, we really appreciate your confidence in us. How about 6,000? And I said, done. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh man. So I sold well, my 1% stake in SeatGeek for $6,000, which who knows what I spent that on at that time, probably beer. And <laughs> that's my story. Well, yeah, I guess those are one of those expensive lessons, right? That was an expensive lesson. <laughs> I'd be a worse person if I made a million dollars right out of college, you know, that would, that would, that would be a much shittier person. Oh man. Well, uh, that's crazy. I was thinking they were going to at least double to 10,000. I know. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, all right. So you leave SeatGeek, it spins out, becomes Scribnia. From there, you jump deeper into community. Really what I want to get to, because I know you went into the cooking space for a little yeah. bit. I'm curious, one, how that comes about. And then as well, I guess you made mention of it before, but was that business more you sort of pursuing the idea of like David wants to be an entrepreneur versus leaning into the community? Like how does, because, you know, if you look at your LinkedIn and everything you do, obviously you could share a little bit about the cooking business, but it seems like community is like all right here, very narrow, very focused. And there's like this, this cooking, cooking thing tool. that's, <laughs> although I guess, you know, cooking brings people together. Yeah, right? it's always a community. I mean, it was a community concept for cooking. So yeah, so I joined Scrimnia. It wasn't working still. I pitched Mark on pivoting it to Blogdash, uh, worked on that for about a year. And then I was still not feeling it. I mean, I was basically running an entire company and, and not being like compensated really well for it and not really having ownership in it in the way I wanted to. And then um, a company called Zarly launched. They raised a million dollars from Ash and Kutcher and Groupon out of a startup weekend and had this amazing founder, Bo Fishback. Uh, one of the most charismatic people I've ever met in my life. And they were like, hey, you know, you should come join us and be our director of community. And so I ended up leaving Blogdash to lead community at, at Zarly. Did that for about 10 months. I was fired from that job, which that's a whole nother path we can talk about because that was probably the, you know, a crucible moment in my life, in my career. One of the hardest experiences I ever went through. But shape. Can we talk about that? We can, yeah. Do you want to talk about that now? <laughs> yeah, let's let's jump in because if you keep going, uh, you know, you might jump into something else. Then we'll we'll go uh, we'll go on a tangent. Yeah, I got fired too. I don't know if you you know did. That. Congrats. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> yeah, I got fired too from the first startup that I worked at. Yeah, I joined Zarly. I was director of community. I was still in New York at the time. I was running our New York team, so I was the most senior person in New York. 
one of two most senior people with another person who's director level, but none of the founders, none of the like C-level was, was there. And so I was managing an office. I had about 10 to 12 people in it, a community team of five people. And this was a high, like a hot, hot startup. Like we were on every tech publication you can possibly ask for. We had all the biggest celebrity investors you can ask for. The concept was really exciting and novels like um, a reverse Craigslist. So instead of posting what you're selling, you could post what you wanted and people would respond with offers. You know, I could be like, I want a bacon, egg and cheese. And people will be like, cool, I'll pick it up and bring it to you. Or um, I want a bicycle. I want someone to give me a tour of San Francisco. I want someone to teach me math. Like anything you could ask for, you can ask for on there and people would respond with offers. So really bold, really exciting. But ultimately, the, the product didn't really work. It wasn't sticky. People were dripping through. We were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on marketing and growth, but we had the leaky bucket. People weren't sticking around. And, you know, a lot of that really falls down in some ways on community. It's about like, you know, community is all about how do you keep people engaged? How do you make them loyal? How do you make them motivated to keep contributing? You know, in hindsight, I'm not sure there was much I could have done. I think it was a product problem, not a community problem. We actually had a, a pretty thriving community. But, you know, it was it was a culture that it was very much a hustle culture. It was a culture that did not have great communication standards and values around communication and feedback. There was a lot of toxicity there. And, you know, some people get fired and just kind of disappear and you wouldn't hear why or what um, or what's happening. And when, when the business wasn't growing and there's all these high expectations, I think like it just creates this culture of stress and blame a little bit and lot, lots of issues. And I, I hold no grudges and I'm friends with, I'm still close friends with a lot of people I worked with there. And, you know, I think we all learned a ton from that experience. I think everyone had really good intentions and we're really good people, but it was it was a tough environment to work in. And it just got to the point where, you know, I was also young. Keep in mind, I was... I ran Blogdash for about a year. So it was about a year, year and a half out of college when I became the director of community for this wildly fast growing company. And I was just like pretty much in over my head. I had no idea how to say no. I had no idea how to set expectations. I didn't really understand, you know, how to be accountable to metrics and goals, how to manage a team. And all of a sudden I was managing a, you know, an office and a team. And you know, looking back, didn't really have the support network that I would have needed to learn how to do those things on the fly. And so I just kept saying yes to everything and <laughs> would fall into the spiral that I think a lot of us fall into sometimes where it's like, you're not being productive and then you get depressed about how unproductive you're being. And so you become even less productive and yet more and more things keep adding to your plate. And it just got to a point where there was so much on my plate, nothing was getting done, nothing was moving. I was stressed to all hell. Um, that's actually what moved me out to San Francisco. So I moved out to San Francisco from New York. And, and then a month later, I was fired. And it was devastating. I put all of my self-esteem and self-worth into my work and job. And it's something I still do today, which isn't a good thing. But as a young, like hungry, scrappy entrepreneur, like I really invested the whole of myself into that work. And then to get fired and to be told that like I failed on such like a grand level. Like I was in shock. Like I remember just walking straight out of the building, like shaking and just like walk to the water and just sat by the water for like five hours, just like processing and trying to understand like, how did I get to that point? How do you navigate or move forward after that? Well, I was in San Francisco in a new city. I was tempting to just go back to New York. My girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, uh, was back in New York. So, I, you know, I left her back in New York. My family's in New York. I didn't know anyone in San Francisco, but I wanted to be out in San Francisco. There's a reason I came out. That wasn't just because the company moved me out. Like it's where I wanted to be. I wanted to get into the world of startups, the world of tech and be in the heart of it. I was very lucky. I found an apartment around that time that I moved into. And uh, there are three other roommates in that apartment who all became three of my closest friends in the world. I'm officiating one of their weddings in a, in a month. And I mean, <laughs> you ask them, yes, those three roommates, when I first moved in, they're like, wow, you watched a lot of TV. <laughs> I was basically just like depressed and I couldn't do any work. I, it was probably about three to four months of just like, being depressed, like deeply depressed, watching TV. I would like take walks and try to explore the city. I had some savings, so I didn't feel like necessarily immediately like I needed to get a job. 
And I just like kind of sat with that for a few months. Eventually I start I like needed money. So I started doing some consulting and I picked up a consulting gig that my friend Thomas Knoll hooked me up with. Uh, he was a community professional that I really looked up to and got to know. And I think he was leaving a role at Le Web, which was the biggest tech conference in the world, in Europe at least, working on community for them. And he had to work on something else and he recommended me to take his spot. And I met with the founder, Loic Lemure. We you know, hit it off and I ended up working on their community as a consultant for a year. Ended up getting another gig with Udemy uh, helping them build their initial teacher community. And both of those roles kind of helped me build up my confidence because like I remember Loic, who's like a very well-known, successful entrepreneur. Like I remember literally him saying, you know, I've never seen anyone who could build community the way you are doing this here. Mm. Like it, it rebuilt my confidence in myself to hear that from someone and have that reflected back to me. What would you say going back, like looking back on when you got let go, what would you say now having the perspective, wisdom you do, and just life experience, I guess, you know, what would you say is like the biggest thing you learned about yourself looking backwards on, on that moment? Because I know there's plenty of people who will listen to this who are probably in a similar boat, got let go, especially during these times, or, you know, want to make change, but might feel stuck in where they are, professionally at least. And that can also lead to sort of like a depressive state. So I'm curious, you know, what sort of wisdom you can share as it relates to looking backwards, the growth that you feel you gained as a result of that that hardship. Hmm. I mean, I think I think it's what you talk a lot about on this podcast. It's like the hardest things in your life become your strongest assets. It's where all the bullshit falls away. And, you know, every role I've taken on since getting fired, I've been able to go in with such a deeper level of maturity and awareness around who I am, what my limits are, what I'm good at, how to communicate, how to say no to things, how to set clear expectations. I just learned so many practical lessons by failing in like the hardest way, right? Because there's like, you can make a lot of mistakes and it's very easy to kind of brush it by, you know, brush it under the rug and say like, okay, I made this mistake, but it's like not a big deal. Like I'm not getting fired. I'm not failing. I'm going to continue on. But like when you like hit this, like really, like there's no uncertainty when you hit this like really negative point, it forces you to face mistakes or habits or routines that are not serving you in a very direct way. And so if you are in that position, I mean, I think just hearing from, you know, your story and my story, it's like, looking back at these experiences we have and how we feel they shaped us in a positive way for the rest of our lives. Know that what you're experiencing now is going to help you in the long run. And last thing I'll say is that there's a quote that's always stuck with me from a friend of mine who is one of the greatest internet community builders in the world, uh, Ted Reingold. Uh, he passed away after a battle of cancer a few years ago, he had an auto away message while he was battling cancer that went out to people. And he just like left his like seven life tips in that. He's like, I'm battling cancer. It's not looking good. In my stead, I leave you with these you know, words of wisdom, basically. And I, I remember getting that autoresponder when I sent him an email, just wishing him well. And I, that's the only email I never archive. It's always in my inbox. What was the the message? He had a bunch, but the one that really stood out to me is is the journey is the destination. Mm. I think his exact words were, journey is the destination now more than ever. And so there's always a temptation to feel like the work you're doing, like you're trying to hit this like state of success in the future or state of happiness. At some point you'll have one, at some point you'll be enough. And it's like the only time that you can be enough is right now. There's no point in the future that you need to work toward to be enough. The journey you're on is a destination. Where you're trying to go is is right now. Mm, I love that. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think especially you know that quote gave me chills just now. But I think I think it's funny because um, I've been thinking about this more and more. This topic where for quite some time, you know, I was personally battling the idea that I felt like I was stuck in what one person referred to as the messy middle, mm. and that sort of really stuck with me. And I, I started to really ask myself, well, 
why am I in this messy middle? How do I get out? And how do I sort of realign? And I've been working with a coach and she really challenged me and made me, at least from my experience, what she did was she challenged that concept of there not really being a messy middle, that the journey is just messy. Mm. And it's not just sort of like this straight path up to success, similar to what you're saying. But I do find that so many people go through a phase or multiple moments in their life where they are isn't enough or where like they just aren't where they want to be just yet. Mm -hmm. And I can relate to that because I, I was feeling that for some time. But this coach opened up my eyes and made me realize like the journey's just messy. It's dark at times. It's sludgy. And you got to just em embrace, like enjoy that messiness. That's part of the, the ride, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you're always in the middle. You're always in the middle of something, right? Even the the person who just sold their company for five billion dollars, you know, you know, they're they're still thinking about like what's next and you know, where do I go from here and you know, what's my purpose? What do I focus on? What do I do with that new wealth that I found? There's never a point where you're like, All right, like I'm good. Unless Yeah, you, that's something I'm learning just recently. <laughs> well then the only time you can find that is right now. The only time you can find that is in the present. And you know, something that I work on a lot is trying not to label or judge things. So, you know, if I'm in a space where I'm feeling very stressed or expectations are high, I have a lot on my plate, which, you know, right now I've, I have a kid coming in five weeks. We're going to have our first kid. I have a book due, a manuscript due in three weeks. We're like trying to hire people. We're pivoting our entire company. We're migrating our community. There's an inhuman amount of stuff on my plate. And so I like, I've had to really be intentional and remind myself that, you know, it's part of the journey, but also that like the stress I'm feeling, the anxiety, it's asking how is this serving me and not judging it as good or bad. Not saying that because I feel this way, it's bad or good. Um, it just is, right? It's like a very like Zen way of thinking about it. Like dropping ashes on the Buddha is one of my favorite books and I'm rereading it now because I just needed to like keep reminding myself. But you know, they say over and over again in that book, Zen is like this, which just means, you know, look around you and feel where you are now, what you're thinking, everything. There's no changing that needs to happen. It's like this. It, it is just as it is. And if you don't judge what it is, then you are essentially at peace. You, you've found Zen. Mm. Your voice is very Zen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's why I have a podcast, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump back in. So how does the cooking business come about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that that apartment I found with the three roommates, I was still consulting for those two companies, for Udemy and LeWeb. But I like was like getting to the point where I really wanted to start a business and get into like building my own startup from the ground up and was like kind of playing around with lots of ideas. I was sitting in that apartment one day. I remember my sister was visiting from New York. We were just hanging out in the living room and my roommate Nadia was with us. And I just like threw out an idea because like I wanted to get better at cooking and everything that I found for learning how to cook was like very Martha Stewart-y. It was very like made for like moms or, you know, very female focused, you know, for an older generation generally. Or you go to like a cooking class and it was really just about dating and you cook this very fancy thing with all these fancy tools in a, in a cooking you know, in a, in a professional kitchen. And then you'd go home and have no idea how to actually feed yourself. <laughs> and so I was like, well, you know, wouldn't it be really cool if there was a way to just get ingredients sent here? So, you know, I don't have to worry about food shopping, which was stressful for me as, you know, a young entrepreneur without a lot of time and didn't know much about cooking. I just wanted to learn like some great recipes. So I was like, send me all the ingredients with a recipe and let me cook it at home. Um, if it sounds familiar, Blue Apron and Plated basically ended up building that concept. Uh, we all actually launched right around the same time. I'd never, you know, they didn't exist when we first started talking about the idea, at least not publicly. And we formed this concept. I basically like threw out that idea and Nadia, my roommate was like, that's really cool. Like, let's start like playing with it. And we started like drawing out ideas and like designing the box and ended up, you know, starting that company. Again, it was just like wanting to build a cool company. It seemed like a good idea that no one else had solved. Um, we ended up building a pro like a beta prototype and uh, we were we found a chef, created these like really nice professional recipes, started a six week like class basically where every week people would get a box with a recipe 
and all the ingredients for two or four people. And they'd essentially be able to do like a cooking class at home with their family or their friends and and get a full meal and learn how to cook. And it was very like scrappy. And it's all about like how to cook, you know, quickly and understanding, like breaking down the first principles of cooking. So it wasn't just about a recipe. Mm. It was like understanding taste and flavor and what goes into a complete meal and knife skills and like the fundamentals. So you actually wouldn't need a recipe in the future. You can just intuitively understand how to cook. And we we did that beta for six weeks. We had about 10 customers in that beta. Went really well. We got really positive feedback. Ended up applying for 500 startups, uh, the accelerator program, and uh, were accepted there. We're probably the like earliest stage startup they ever accepted because uh, we're so really new. I don't. I think because of us, they never will accept a company that early again. But um, <laughs> we we're about six of 500 startups, so super early days, and ended up working on that company for about a year and a half. And you know, pivoted a bunch, tried a lot of different things. Um, ended up just like because it wasn't our passion when we hit really hard plateaus we didn't really have the the personal motivation to keep pushing through it and struggled mightily to raise more money and it was just you know we were both exhausted and um, that was when i ended up starting cmx was right around the time when we were winding down feast and kind of segued into cmx shutting down that business you did it for a few years was that a hard experience or at the time where you like really checked out and you were ready for what's next and you were like, hey, this didn't work or what was your mindset like at that moment? It was hard. I mean, it's always hard getting to that point where you like feel like you're giving up, right? You feel like you're mm. accepting defeat in a way. But I mean, Nadia and I arrived at that point at the same time together and we're good at communicating through that and both felt good about the decision. We ended up being able to sell the product to Daria Rose, who's the founder of Foodist. And so the class that we created it ended up being a digital only class still exists today is the foodist kitchen. It's taught hundreds, I think thousands of people how to cook now. So, you know, mm. we felt really good that we actually were able to have an impact that we set out to have, which is like teach more people to feel confident cooking. And even if it wasn't a successful business, you know, we, we still felt good about it living on and continuing to have that impact. We learned a ton. I mean, we, we moved down to Mountain View and lived in a apartment with an air mattress and a couch, basically and nothing else for three months during 500 startups. Like we worked as hard as you could possibly work on something and it just didn't work. And CMX had like, I was kind of like, I did the first conference almost like as a side project. And I was so drawn to that. Like it went so well when we did that first event and uh, that like that mindset shift I mentioned earlier of like leaning into community really clicked into place for me. And, you know, I told Nadia, I'm like, I really want to kind of see this through. There feels like what I should be focusing on. You could feel that. Yeah. All right. So you launched CMX, first event. What's it like? Well, so um, I co-founded the communitymanager.com with two friends of mine, Jen Petey and Brett Petersell in New York. A few years earlier, it was just a blog and a job board. Uh, we did you know, some meetups and stuff like that, but just focused on helping community managers and sharing stories and lessons. We had talked about doing a conference for a long time. Because, you know, how cool would it be? Like the industry didn't have a conference. No one even called it the community industry at that point. Like no one used even community professionals as a term. It was just, there are community managers out there and there was nowhere really for them to gather and support each other. So the, there was always like, okay, a conference could be cool, but I was always really intimidated by running a conference. Like what a massive intimidating project to take on. I have no idea how to run a full conference and it seems really expensive and no idea. But my friend Max Altschuler, who I think you know as well, yeah, he's a founder of Sales Hacker and ran a conference called Sales Hacker. He was my buddy. We met through Udemy, actually, uh, when, when I first uh, did that consulting there. And he was like, hey, you know that conference you've been wanting to do? I really think it's a big opportunity. I know how to run a conference now. You have all the connections and the network for speakers and marketing. Why don't we run it and just give it a shot? And I said, okay, let's let's try it. And I felt confident doing it because, you know, I had now a partner who had experience running a conference. And so uh, we put that whole thing together. I think it was like five weeks. It was less than two months. We put a whole conference together. Uh, it was very scrappy. We had no money, really. So we literally, like, I just emailed 10 of the people I respected most in the industry and asked them if they would speak if I launched the conference. And they were like, yeah, sure. And I probably emailed like 100 people that I knew in the industry. And I was like, hey, if I host a conference, would you come? Would you pay for it? Would you pay $300 for it? And I got enough yeses that I felt like, okay, this is good. And so we put together a website. 
and put those speakers up on there and started selling tickets. We didn't have a venue. We didn't have, we, I think we just like put a date up, but like, we're like, eh, we, we can kind of move it if we need to or something. And then as people bought tickets, we would put a down payment down on a venue and we would put a down payment down on a caterer and just started paying for things. So it was kind of a risky way to do it, but it worked <laughs> out. Luckily, we were able to get a couple sponsors on too. And we had 300 people come to that first event from around the world. And it was really 300 people, 300 people. And wow. it's like why I build a community. It was like a very clear example of why that work is so rewarding. Cause it was like 300 people who were building community for businesses who felt very misunderstood. No one ever understood what community management was. They're like, Oh, so you manage a Facebook page or you, uh, you, you manage like social media platforms. Like I don't really understand what you do. Uh, are you customer support? And so they'd have to explain themselves constantly. They're usually the only community manager at an event and, um, and their work is still being perceived as like low level and not important. And we put 300 of those people in, in a room and told them that their work is extremely important. We believe that community is the future of business because it's what we truly believed. And for the first time in their professional careers as community professionals, they didn't have to explain what they do. Everyone in that room understood. And they, everyone in that room had the same challenges. They had the same language, the same identities. And so it was like seeing people find belonging for the first time in an identity that they cared a lot about. And, mm. and so that was like, fuck, that's what it's all about. Like, I got to keep doing this. And it, and it just kind of grew from there. So the first event, you have 300 people show up. Are you still doing, you're still in the cooking business? Um, like at that yeah, moment? in that moment, yes. Okay, so 300 people are at this event that you scrappily put together with like limited budget, if any budget at all. So you scrappily put this together, limited budget, limited resources, 300 people are there. When you're there, are you thinking like, did you feel the sense of alignment or like, this is my calling or this is where I belong? Did you feel yeah, something like that? I did, yeah. You knew right away. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was just like, the clouds didn't part or anything, you know, there wasn't like a necessarily like a oh. visceral, yeah, you know, point where it was like, Oh, this is it. But like the joy I felt from that and the, the purpose, and then just hearing from people, like there's no greater measurement of success than like someone coming up to you and just saying that like this event changed my life. Yeah. But 300 people is a lot of people like, you know, you put, you do an event and like 10 people show up especially for the first one. Yeah. I did a lot of those. I've done a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. It took a lot of work to get those 300 people in the room. I mean, we, we hustled. So you're building this business still today, right? So we were, we were acquired a year and a half ago. So I, I bootstrapped the business. Uh, Max ended up working with me on it for a year um, and then switched his full-time focus over to sales hacker continues to be a owner and partner and friend and bootstrapped it for five years, built a team around it. And then a year and a half ago, we were acquired by a company called Bevy, which builds community software. Not the soda company. Not the soda company. Much better than that. We get that a lot. We get that a lot. <laughs> yes. I think when you announced it and I saw on Facebook or some LinkedIn, whatever it was, I was like, oh. <laughs> That's random. Why would they buy CMX? <laughs> yeah. They, it's like a Powers community event program. So if you have user groups around the world, you know, it's software that you can use to give those local chapter leaders uh, the tools they need to run their local community events. So like any business, I'm sure your business had its fair share of struggles, hardships along the way. Just I'm curious, as you were building CMX, it sounds like you found like personal purpose within the business. But was there any moment or time while you were building it where you were like, ah, is this is this really what I'm like? Is there really a future opportunity here? or you were bullish and you sort of knew it from the get-go. Was there any moment of doubt, I guess, along the way? There's never a moment of doubt that what we were doing was really important and needed to be done and was genuinely helping a lot of people. There was never a doubt around that. The struggle came mostly in, in terms of like finances and figuring out a business model. You know, we built an incredible community and brand, but community as an industry continued to be not totally valued on the level that it's getting to today. And community teams didn't always have a big budget. So it was hard for us to sell trainings and grow the conference and 
community software products, they didn't even know what we were talking about when we were like, Hey, you should sponsor a conference. It's all on community. They're like, we don't spot. There are no conferences on community. Like we don't have a budget for this. (laughs) And so, you know, over the years, eventually companies started carving out budgets just for CMX summit, but they didn't have an event sponsorship budget because it wasn't an event for their software before. So it was, it was a big uphill battle to build a business in an industry, a community business in an industry that was still so nascent and, still didn't have a ton of buy-in. And I mean, I think like I definitely hit a lot of low points with it. I mean, the next conference we hosted, we almost lost $50,000. We we went to New York and tried to grow it bigger than 300. Turned out it was a lot harder to sell tickets in New York. We almost lost $50,000. We had to make some massive last minute moves to switch up venues two weeks before the event and like just like figure out a way to break even on the event to live another day. And we were able to do that, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, we, we built a company, we sold trainings, we, you know, did workshops and stuff for big companies. We did consulting to bring in money. We sold memberships. We did everything we could to find like a sustainable business model, but really I can't ever claim that we really succeeded in finding a really strong sustainable business model that would have helped us grow beyond, you know, at at the biggest, we were four full-time people. And that ultimately brings us to like when we got acquired. And um, at that point I was, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to give up on CMX, but I was getting a point where I'm like, maybe we should stop doing the conference because it just like, it takes so much time and work and energy and we make some profit on it, but it's, it's not highly profitable. We still can't get big enough sponsors to really, you know, blow it up. At the end of the day, conferences make most of their money on, on sponsorships and there just wasn't enough sponsorship dollars in this industry. And I was ready to kind of like make some massive changes. And, And that was around the time that I was talking to Derek the Bevy CEO, who I became friends with after he spoke at CMX Summit a couple of years before. And he was just like, you can't. No, <laughs> like you can't. <laughs> like it's too important. Like the industry needs this. Like, and like we need to be building community and content around our product. And you've already built the best one in the world, but you feel resource constrained. Like what if we partnered? And, and that's what kicked mm. off that conversation. So it's almost like hitting that point of almost giving up a little bit and, and facing that failure on the business side of what we were building that led to the acquisition, which has unlocked so much growth and value. It's been phenomenal since then. And our conference has now grown to, you know, a thousand people. We have 60 chapters going around the world and everything has just been growing really fast and leveling up now that we have the resources to do it. Mm, I love it. Well, it's a fascinating story how, just bringing it back, really love how you painted such a clear picture of why community is so important to you from childhood. And it's awesome to see, obviously, the impact they're having and worldwide, you know, when helping people build community and, you know, learn how, how to do that effectively, et cetera. So, yeah, it's been very interesting to hear the whole, the whole David's yeah. story the last hour or so. Thanks, man. What do you see? So CMX, is it now CMX is Bevy or it's still its own entity? It's still its own brand. We are one team. We all work on both, but we make sure to keep CMX objective and authentic because we want it to be serving the industry and the community first, not, you know, be a, just like a sales engine. Uh, We do drive sales and growth for Bevy, but it comes, you know, through authentic engagement. And so um, they kind of coexist. And, you know, if you see CMX, the logo around now, you'll probably see like CMX powered by Bevy, that kind of thing. Where do you see um, David Spinks and Bevy in the next, let's call it, 10 years? Oh, filthy rich. And, uh, you know, we've uh, reached our destination. We are now successful. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, we're going to continue on the journey. We're in a crazy time now because of coronavirus. Bevy was very focused on in-person community. And now we've adapted and um, we have our a whole virtual event experience that we offer now and we built over the last six months and we're powering community programs for companies like Slack and Red Bull and and some really cool companies. So Bevy's, you know, growing well and I think solving a very specific problem in the industry. So I'm I'm very bullish on the future there. CMX, we're just gonna keep trying to raise the bar. There I just tweeted the other day, like the community industry is still very much a blue ocean. There's so much research, training and education and frameworks, technology and tools still to be built in this space. 
Like I've been working in it for 10 years now and I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. So I'm just really excited to like keep leveling up our team. We're hiring new researchers and content creators and 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 trainers and event organizers and just trying to like continuously push the boundaries of how people perceive and understand and value community. Mm-hmm. There's there's so much room to grow still. So I have no idea where that end is at this point. Sounds like your plate's full. A lot of work to do. So much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so we can we can start to wrap this up. The last question I usually like to ask all my guests is around the bits of gold that, you know, my guests have to offer. There have been a lot of valuable information and lessons in your story. Uh, you know, my podcast is all about facing adversity and really building your dream life. So with that being said, you know, more so I'm curious what would be your bits of gold on how to build a life you love. Yeah, I th- I have to just kind of go back to what we discussed and, you know, that, that quote from Ted Rheingold, you know, the journey is the destination. The life you love is now. You may not have all the things that you want to have. You may not have accomplished all the things you want to accomplish yet, but the truth is you never will. And, you know, a life you love, it's a choice a little bit. It's it's a choice to love who you are and where you are, regardless of what these kind of like external metrics are. Or going back to, you know, dropping ashes on the Buddha. Zen is like this. There's no good. There's no bad. There just is. So I think both of those quotes kind of have the same point. It's just like be present and enjoy the path um, because the path is the only thing you'll ever be able to enjoy because you'll always be on it. Love it. Where can our listeners find you, connect with you, et cetera? I tweet too much <laughs> at David Spinks on Twitter. You can find everything CMX related at cmxhub.com for any of you building community. You can find tons of resources and articles and videos on how to do that there. And Bevy is bevy.com if you need software to help you do that. Awesome. Well, thanks for the hour. Can't wait to uh, share this one with the world. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Bits of Gold. I hope you enjoyed that episode with David Spinks. I know I did. If you like this episode, please take a moment, share it with a friend, subscribe to Bits of Gold, and tag us on your Instagram story. You can tag us at Bits of Gold underscore podcast. New recap episode dropping this Wednesday, solo episode Friday. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 